7.32. So um, let's get into as much of the expertise on this as we can, because this is the third time this century a new strain of coronavirus has jumped species and infected humans. And it's led to calls for wild animal markets, for example, to be shut down. As all three strains, SARS, MERS, and now new novel coronavirus, have uh, proven to be deadly. Uh, The latest has claimed 427 lives and counting, more than 20,000 infections, mostly in China, but at least two deaths outside of China in uh, Hong Kong, the latest of those reported. Uh, The outbreak's epicenter in Wuhan is believed to be a market where there were seafood sales going on, but also several other exotic animals. To talk about the relationship between bats and viruses and so-called zoonotic diseases, we have Dr. Kevin Olival, Vice President for Research at EcoHealth Alliance, a non-profit research organization on the line. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time. So looking at this as coldly as possible to start off with, without questioning what we should and shouldn't be eating. Bats are thought to be the the natural host of the the novel coronavirus. Um, We know also there's this link between bushmeat and, for example, Ebola, uh, with bats also implicated there. As a researcher who's done projects across Southeast Asia for over 10 years with a strong focus on bats, why are they so much in focus? Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a million-dollar question. I mean, we know that coronaviruses in particular have a huge diversity in bats more than other groups of mammals. And it seems that bats are potentially one of the sort of natural evolutionary sources for a lot of this coronavirus diversity around the world. Um, so for that group in particular, uh, we know that bats just happen to, because of their their history, their evolutionary history, um, sort of created a big diversity of, of that group of pathogens. And so, you know, for SARS and, and novel coronavirus, um, it's not really surprising for us. These people, you know, the group of researchers, including myself, have done research on these viruses for a long time because we know that they existed in nature and there were, you know, thousands of variants of these viruses that exist naturally in bat populations in nature. Apparently, bats can host many different viruses. A single bat can do that without getting sick. Why is that? Is their immune system particularly different to humans? You know, it's, a, it's an area of active research. There's some interesting work coming out now looking at bat immunology, so um, how they can cope with viruses, uh, they're tolerant to them, or they can clear infections. Uh, one suggestion is that because they've evolved for flight, right, bats are the only group of mammals that have the ability for self-powered flight, um, there's a lot of energetic expense that comes with flight, so a lot of damage to cells just by sort of ramping up your metabolism and burning that much energy every night. Um, so one theory is is based on that evolution towards flight. It also made some they have some adaptations to their immune system to deal with um, that damage to cells and tissues and things. Um, so that's that's one theory that's out there. There's some some evidence coming in on that. You know, but I think yeah, it's still a bit of an open question. I think all mammals carry viruses, so that's something we need to remember. It's not just bats that seem to carry viruses that jump into people. Um, you know, HIV came from chimpanzees, uh, in when that first spilled over in Africa, maybe up you know decades ago. 
Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, and also rodents, you know, I, I know that there's um, hantaviruses. I know that Korea's um, had some detections of different hantaviruses and the research literature that are found in rodents. So these are these are kind of common to all mammals. There's there's viruses that can jump into people. The question is, why are they jumping in? And what, what are we doing that's changing the environment that's making them jump? Yeah, the, the, the clue, the relationship between major issues of this nature, outbreaks and animals, has been there for all to see, as you've, I think, outlined extensively there. But even the famous example of bubonic plague, for example, and, uh, and the fleas... Uh, mm-hmm. on top of black rats uh, as history students learn uh, at an early age um th- and of course today carried by animals still uh the the question is uh, what is wrong with our traditions we have i think learned to closely associate with relatively safe animals like dogs and cats in in many parts of the world right. and, and to eat animals like cows and and pigs and I mean, there may be occasional problems with them, but generally they seem to be far less uh, harmful to us than, uh, say, eating bats. But there are parts of the world where bats are considered still a delicacy. Uh, what's going on there? Why is it suddenly an issue now? Yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, it's an exponential increase in not only the number of people on the planet, but the way in which we're interacting with the environment and really modifying the environment and interacting with, with species and wildlife that, you know, decades ago, uh, certainly 100 years ago, we would have never come into contact with. So, you know, we're, um, we're a very abundant species, and, and we don't really always necessarily like to eat bats and other wildlife, but we're sort of encroaching on their environment and coming into contact with them more frequently. But I mean, I remember, I just, I just want to yeah. make a point. This is several years ago, I was stretching my memory back um, yesterday. I had the privilege in my very young childhood of going to uh, the Seychelles on a vacation. And there they uh, were eating a lot of fruit bats. And I remember distinctly yeah. being in a hotel buffet and they actually had bats just like in the one of the trays being served up. So it wasn't like it was a, a diet of desperation in that particular example. And I presume, based on some of the video footage I've seen, that that goes on in various parts of the world. That's right. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly not as uncommon as you think. And you know, I we, you know, we don't know that there's a link necessarily to eating the animal, right? That, you know, cooking the animal whatever it is is probably a lower risk cuz you're killing virus. But it's also a giant huge conservation issue, right? We we're thinking about trying to protect these species around the world. Bats, especially fruit bats, do a lot of good for the environment. They pollinate crops and trees and and hardwood trees in the forest. And they also disperse seeds and really are kind of provide these invaluable ecosystem services. And, of course, insectivorous bats, the ones that have been linked to even to the novel coronavirus, these horseshoe bats, you know, they, they control insect populations. So they're also out there controlling uh, vector, you know, vector populations of insects like, you know, mosquitoes and other vectors that might be out there. So it is a balance. We want to balance the conservation, but also try and minimize our interaction with some of these species. Yeah, in terms of um, handling this this subject from a scientific point of view, are you concerned that it jumps into the topic of racism quite quickly when we start questioning what societies around the world are actually eating? 
Yeah, it's something we need to be you know acutely aware of. These a, a lot of the you know, wildlife consumption you're talking about deep rooted cultural practices. Um, so just you know going into a society and you know if that is indeed the interface by which the disease is jumping, you say a wildlife market. You can't just say you know close down your markets. That's gross. Um, go eat chickens instead. I mean you have to really look at you know work with anthropologists, sociologists, and really understand the behavior and what what are the sort of cultural norms and what are the reasons for that particular behavior in order to make some some real change? Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of playing lip service and you're not really going to institute any change. The the chicken one is an interesting example. Chickens are probably responsible for a huge amount of sickness around the world, either through uncooked meat or Mm. um, eggs, for example. Uh, And and bird flu is a major risk to birds themselves. How likely is it that actually we might see a future pandemic from a more familiar animal like a chicken? Oh, conceivable. I mean, you know, influenza, obviously, global influenza outbreaks have been on the, you know, radar of disease uh, researchers and public health professionals for decades. You know, we always talk about the 1918 flu pandemic, and we want to avoid a, a catastrophic disaster like that. Well, flu, you know, recombines, and you know, when we put when you put chicken, duck viruses, and pig viruses together, as often when you get these recombinant flu viruses, and so there's definitely a link there with domestic agriculture, and having you know better biosecurity in those production systems is really going to be essential to reducing the the risk of disease emergence from the livestock sector as well. I understand you're working with authorities in the United States to build an early warning system for potentially dangerous viruses, which could alert communities when the risk of an outbreak is high. Straight off the bat, I sense it requires global co- cooperation. Uh, there's been a lot of praise, for example, for China's response, but there have also been reports that the first medical personnel who noticed this in December were effectively silenced, and, and that was the golden time for preventing uh, the, the further spread of this outbreak. So what are your general thoughts on this kind of system and how effective it, it can possibly be in a, in a global world? Yeah, so we were part of a USAID, a U.S. Agency for International Development, 10-year project that uh, worked in 30 countries around the world in the last five years, focused on Asia and, and countries in Africa and across Asia. And, you know, the the premise of it, as you said, is it was to build an early warning system and to strengthen in-country capacity to do this the de- disease detection and early detection work. So I, I think there's a number of critical components. One is having, you know, one, the human resources, uh, people that are well-trained in identifying, you know, weird, suspicious early events, uh, sort of a human and a clinical stage, but also getting even more upstream of that and looking at, you know, the animal populations, and can we characterize the the risk around the human-animal interface? And that boils down to people's behaviors, but also understanding what viruses are out there in the natural wildlife populations and the domestic animal populations. So we did a lot of sort of um, surveillance and pathogen discovery. But as you just alluded to, a critical piece of all that is really cooperation and trust and, and data sharing and, you know, thinking about information sharing. And so, under that big project, you know, all of our work in each country happened, obviously, with local partners, but we always had a point of contact at the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Agriculture, and the Ministry of Environment or Wildlife, uh, and, and really worked closely with those three ministries to 
help build a system where where data and information were shared across sectors. So if someone, you know, in the Ministry of Environment was seeing a weird die-off of primates in, you know, a natural protected area, well, that might be an early warning system where, okay, maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's a weird primate disease. Maybe that's like an early warning to what might become a human outbreak. So really kind of sharing information across those sectors was a key piece of it. Yeah, and and without... um just solely demonizing bats, as I mentioned before, and there is probably even more of a tendency to do that given bats' role in human folklore and the vampire stories and, and so on. Um, we do have several possibilities that people will be pondering at the moment. We know, for example, that like a movie like Contagion has suddenly jumped in popularity. People are sure. really swallowing up this uh, pandemic future possibility. Um, and, and I know you've also talked about the possibility that Ebola could strike here in Asia, which is, would be frightening. Mm. To me, of, of all these diseases, just looking at their symptoms, Ebola looks like it's right up there in terms of being absolutely frightening. What, what are your thoughts on, on the coming months and years and, and what we as a public should be looking out for in addition to being cautious uh, about our hygiene and warning systems? Yeah, I mean, I think it's from a public perspective, you know, I think you just need to, you know, people talk about hand washing and basic hygiene, which seems, you know, seems a little repetitive, but as sort of like the common public, once these diseases do start spreading in people, that really is the best thing is sort of social distancing, right? Keep keeping your distance, staying at home when you're sick, washing your hands. And, and that's really, you know, really what people should be doing and thinking about. But I think in terms of, you know, what's going to strike next and thinking about, you know, like you said, Nipah and Ebola and some of these other viruses, I mean, just, you know, supporting your, your government and your local scientists to, that are doing this type of work. So we had some, you know, publications working with colleagues in Bangladesh that showed that, yeah, there's some evidence that some of the bats in, in that part of the world, South Asia, actually carried Ebola virus uh, antibodies to Ebola virus which was the first time that that had ever been detected outside of Africa, right? And so changing the paradigm where we can't just think of, you know, disease like Ebola, okay, that's a Central African disease and we don't have to worry about it, or something like MERS is just a Middle Eastern disease and we don't need to worry about it. These uh, viruses are really found all over the world. And it, like you said, it's not just bats, it's, it's wildlife, it's domestic animals, um, and it's also sometimes, you know, mosquito vectors and other vectors that are really responsible for transmission. And I think until we get a more clear understanding from the science of what's out there and what is the true risk, um, you know, I, we don't want to sort of take anything for granted that just because I live in this part of the world, I'm unprotected. And, and as we know, you know, flights can go anywhere within 24 hours on the planet, basically. And so... Uh, a disease that could strike anywhere really could could move across the planet quickly. And, and, you know, I think we need to be supportive of people in those countries, those hotspot countries around the world, those disease hotspots where viruses are most likely to emerge because our health really depends on their health. Like, you know, there's a there's also a Ebola outbreak still going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not getting a lot of news attention. But, you know, that is still an ongoing outbreak that people are working hard to contain, uh, but it's been raging on for over a year now. Dr. K. 
Kevin Oliveau from the EcoHealth Alliance. Thank you for raising that awareness as well for us today. It's uh, hugely important. If this latest outbreak had a death toll of 10% or higher, you can imagine how much more serious the, the panic would be. And, and it doesn't seem totally inconceivable for the future. Um, please keep us informed uh, going forward. I will. Thank you so much for having me.